0: It's not done when you play it live, it's done when it reaches somebody. Right. And then it's like, that's the full life cycle of the song, that's when you're like, okay.
1: 97X Icons from the 97X Archives. We
0: got in a band to really make a
1: difference in the world. Committed to 30 Seconds to Mars in a very, very deep way. One-on-one with the biggest names in alternative music. Episode 5, Tim McKilrith of Rise Against.
2: Tito's Handmade Vodka is distilled from corn and certified gluten-free. In the mid-90s, Tito Beveridge built his very own micro-distillery in Austin, Texas and put his life savings into it. He continues to produce award-winning, smooth American vodka on the same land where it all started over 20 years later. Tito's has won the unanimous Judge's Choice Double Gold Medal at the World Spirits Competition among many other awards. Visit us at Tito'sVodka.com for recipes, videos, and more of Tito's story. 80 proof Tito's handmade vodka, distilled in bottle in Austin, Texas, crafted to be savored responsibly. Welcome back to our 97X Icons Podcast. My name is Sam, and today we're going back to April 30th, 2012 when Tim McElrath from Rise Against stopped by our radio station right here, and he sat down with 97X's Shark in the performance theater, and they had a really awesome conversation. They talked about everything from some memorable 97X Green Room performances to the controversy behind the band's upside-down flag they put up at shows, and their performance with Rage Against the Machine LA Uprising. Now, the reason they were in town was there was a show at Stadium Green Iguana they were doing. Yes, there was actually a music venue behind Green Iguana on Del Mabry. Ugh good times. And at this point, they'd released six studio albums, with the most recent being Endgame, with the hit Help Is On The Way. But really, they were just an important part of 97X's history. They played the first 97X NBT in 2005. They did two more after that, headlining both 9 and 12. They did multiple green rooms, 2005, 7, and 8. The last one actually happened, this was really cool, on the roof of Red Mesa Cantina in downtown St. Pete. And 97X is actually the number three spinner of Rise Against in the country and have been for the last 20 years. So enjoy this moment with Tim McElrath of Rise Against.
1: Uh, last time I saw you was last July, LA Rising. Oh yeah, was this show that uh, a buddy of mine was like, oh man, I got tickets to this show. It's Rise Against, Lauren Hill, Muse, and Rage Against the Machine mm-hmm. at the LA Coliseum. <laughs> and you got to take me through that show.
0: That show was incredible. I mean, this was what you know. This was Rage coming back and doing their first show in L.A. in a long, long time. Mm-hmm. Um, They're playing a, a venue which is sort of revered by by L.A. music fans, and and, and hadn't been played live music hadn't been played there in, in, in a long, long time. Rage insisted on doing the show there. You know, they, Rage took over a lot of the entire production of it all. It was pretty much like you know, it was one of those shows. Like even the post said, like like. Rage Against the Machine presents. You know I mean? It wasn't like some giant company was like, doing it all. You know I mean? Of course, there were people who handle security and all that stuff, but like, Rage had their hand in every single detail. Mm-hmm. You know? And when I walked on to that site, I knew that that was entirely the truth because, like I was telling you earlier, it was, it's a sports arena that has flags and advertisements everywhere. Every flag had been pulled down and raised with black flags <laughs> that were now surrounding the perimeter of the arena. It was like, oh my god! Like it felt like scary, it felt like it felt like Mad Max. You know, it felt like you were walking into like, what's gonna happen here? You know, and then every ad for beer, or sports, or insurance companies or whatever was all blacked out. Mm. You know, and then some of the nosebleed seats that they weren't selling was a giant red star. And it really felt like pirates taking over. It felt like Lord of the Flies. You know, what I mean, it was like this place is ours for the night. You know, and there's no products being sold, there's no advertising happening. You know, and that was it was so incredible. Then they handpicked each. Um, Artist, um, which was very diverse. You know, Muse was playing. Lauren Hill was playing. Lauren Hill was, I think she had just had a baby. I want to say. Yeah, there was something within was, like three or four days. So yeah. She had just had a baby. You know what I mean? Yeah. And she was out there, and we went on after her, which was really a strange sort of so between Lauren Hill and <laughs> Muse. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Rise against. I know. Yeah, it was really. It was like coming from her, like super, you know, real chill and laid back vibe, and all of a sudden we had to go bark into a microphone for an hour, um, and it was it was incredible. We had an incredible show and then I went up to one of like the one of like the, the newscaster boxes and watched the rage show and I watched I watched sixty, eighty thousand people, something like that. Mm-hmm. I watched them just go crazy. And mm-hmm. it was oh my god, I've never seen anything like it. I've never seen anything like it. It was it was it was the closest I've ever seen anything come to a total riot or apocalypse without right. actually <laughs> crossing over to that. I mean, there were fires starting mm-hmm. like on the fields, just bonfires I mean it really w- looked like Lord of the Flies it was crazy and at one point and anybody there will tell you in the first like, the second song the PA went out <laughs> mm-hmm. and you heard this collective groan from the crowd like
2: oh
0: and you could st- and the band didn't know you could tell that because they were probably still really loud on stage and then I'm just thinking I gotta get out of here <laughs> <laughs> this is gonna be good <laughs> I gotta get out of this place it's gonna burn down and the PA came back on finally and, and, the, and the show didn't even slow down but it was definitely one of those sort of epic nights, and you could tell that the audience needed that. You know, mm-hmm. you could tell the audience has needed rage. You know, over these last ten years, you know, what I mean, rage was so important. Um, they came at a time. Rage was rage came into music in a pre-9/11 time when artists were still really pushing and they were unafraid and unapologetic about what they were pushing. You know, um, it was a time when you know, Zach Taylor was his lyrics were really um, compelling and insightful, and the kind of stuff that I don't know in a post nine eleven world you'd, you'd be hearing on the radio if right. they if they had not been grandfathered in. You know what I mean? That's a like, good point. It's like I mean, I'm sure if I wrote a song right now that, that talked about myself rolling down Rodeo with a shotgun, you know, it would probably be frowned upon in most <laughs> you know <laughs> most mainstream circles. And yet this is, was one of the biggest hits of our time, mm-hmm. and is it, getting played on a hundred stations as we speak. Yep. You know, so it's it was they were a brave band, and they are a brave band.
1: Now, does, does Zach just call you?
0: Did, I mean, are you at home in Chicago? And the hey,
1: it's Zach's on the phone. He wants to play a show <laughs> in, in this summer.
0: That did not happen. Um, but um, but Morello did. You know, yeah. it, it was it was. I've um, I've got to know Morello over the last um, mm-hmm. couple of years. We're both from Chicago. Um, we have a lot in common, though. He's a Cubs fan, and I'm a Sox fan. Yeah. So we differ there. We're gonna have to bridge that divide <laughs> somehow. Um, and uh, I went out and did a solo tour with him. Mm-hmm. He asked me to come out and just do some songs, and I did that. And we took his, his solo thing, The Night Watchman, mm-hmm. to the UK with us and really uh, loved the guy. And, and, and he came to love us as well. And so when the show uh, came up, we got a call. And it was we couldn't have, couldn't have been more excited. And we tried to open up some of their shows in the past. Um, I don't, though I don't think any of the guys in Rage will, ad, will admit it, I think that they were probably just too concerned about how that flyer was going to look. It was going <laughs> to be real confusing. Like Rage Against the Rise Against, the, what is this show? You know, yeah, too I much feel, against. Going I feel on like there. if we had a different name, we would have opened for Rage a long time ago. <laughs> well, you said earlier,
1: like the, the the passing of the baton. You know, I mean, there was a little bit of a passing baton there. I mean, you know, Rage just kind of stopped. You know, but there was they they had a message. Mm-hmm. You said it's a pre-9/11 message. Mm-hmm. You know, but. Rise Against has a message, too. Mm-hmm. I mean, you guys are not afraid to politics, religion, whatever. You guys, mm-hmm. you know, you, you do carry that torch a little bit.
0: Right, and that's sort of, the f- that's that's what I guess makes our band different than a lot of other bands of, of our ilk, is that that's sort of the fuel that that that, that is burning in mm-hmm. Rise Against and what keeps us alight, you know, is that that's what, for me, and as the lyricist, that's what really triggered my interest in music. You know what I mean? Like, I didn't, like, you know buy Guns N' Roses or U2 and think, I want to be a gigantic arena rock star, you know what I mean, and have the world at my feet, and that's, you know, I want this guitar hero dream, you know what I mean? Like, that looked really cool, but it was something more of a fantasy, and and that didn't, that part of music didn't interest me. Um, But in my own scene, the Chicago hardcore scene and punk rock scene, when I saw bands playing rooms no bigger than this one right here on stages just like this, talking about social issues and issues of change and awareness and what was happening in the world and, and introducing the word sweatshop to my lexicon, you know what mm-hmm. I mean? Or telling me about what was happening in the environment. You know, things that my teachers and my parents weren't telling me about and things I never really even considered before. That's when my interest in music really got triggered. You know, that was when I was like, oh wait, like you could write songs and and, and play guitars really loud and 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 use it as a vehicle for something so much bigger than ticket sales or CD sales or private planes or whatever it is, you know what I mean? Like, there's a bigger purpose to this, Mm -hmm. you know what I mean? Like, these bands that that I was growing up and loving were out there for different reasons, you know what I mean? They didn't have that sort of, they didn't get into it, you know, to become rock stars. They got into it to sort of convey their own thoughts Mm -hmm. and the the things that they were privy to or the things that had come to their attention that they wanted to share with with an audience, no matter how small that audience was. And that was when I was like, I want to do that. I want to be on
1: that stage. Do you get validated when somebody comes up to you and says, "Wow, <coughs> I never, I never knew, you know, I never looked at the world this way, or I never saw it this way, whether they're 19 or, or, or 49, because your music opened their eyes to a, a crisis, an issue, or what
2: have
0: you." Yes, and you know, even if it had only happened once in the last, you know, 11, 12 years, mm-hmm. everything we had ever has have ever done will be worth it. Right. And the fact is, it's happened more than once, and it's happened a lot from you know the letters and the emails and talking to the fans and and finding out how the band has influenced them you know it's something that's so incredible to have you know something that's pumping through your headphones actually translate to something to so take like these bigger life decisions like right. whether you're changing your major or you stopped cutting yourself you know what I mean or you reconsidered you know what you want to do with your life you know um, or or you Decided to stop eating meat, or you decided to get involved in activism, or whatever it might be. You know, what yeah. I mean? or you just decided to be a cooler person. You know what I mean? To be nicer to other people. You know what I mean? Like, there's all those things you can that you're like, as a songwriter, you hope those things happen, right. but you're never that cocky to like think like this song is going to change people. You know, <laughs> Rise Against made me cooler. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. And and so when it happens, you're like, oh my god, like that's that that's the full circle. That's mm-hmm. when the that's when the song has done its thing. You know what I mean, it's not it's not done when you. You know, when you put it in the studio and mix it and you get the copy of it. It's not done when you play it live. It's done when it reaches somebody. Right. And then it's like, that's the full life cycle of the song. That's when you're like, okay, from from conception, you know, all the way to the actual results. Mm-hmm. You know, that song did what it was supposed to do.
1: So four years ago, uh, we were in an election where, you know, we, we had... Obama coming up and McCain might happen, and there was, mm-hmm. a, there was this energy in the air about mm-hmm. hope and change and all this stuff. Now we're four years later, it's an election year, and I'm going to bring this up to you because you never shied away from politics. There seems to be a sense of apathy. Like mm-hmm. People just don't care this year. I don't mm-hmm. know. I, I'm bringing it up to you to see if you see that on the road. Right. If you see it when you're you know, in, a, in a charged environment of a rise against show, right. you know, what you're seeing in this political climate.
0: I see a lot of the same things that were happening in the Bush administration in terms of the public and the public's response that, uh, that are happening in the Obama administration. And it's sort of the same um, affliction, I guess. It's that it's not sort of where our politics are, but it's how we view people in power. And we view them as the only people that are capable of producing change. We, like There's too many people. In our country, that view change as a product exclusively manufactured by the White House, mm. and when you do that, you dismiss your own role in it. You sort of you dismiss how much you have to do with that change, and I feel like, and, and as much as I'm, you know, clearly not a fan of the Bush administration and was and their policies, um, I felt like people were giving him too much credit for those policies in a way. Like there was so much, Bush was sort of a symptom of a much bigger disease that was happening. I felt like there were too many punk bands, you know, saying F Bush, you know, and it was like, there's there's more going on here. Right. Because the problems weren't the problems were there before Bush got into office and they're going to be there after he leaves. And if you were and if you exclusively lay blame to, to a single person, then you're gonna breathe this very artificial sigh of relief when they leave the office, you know? And it felt like in the same way in the Obama campaign in, in an almost uh, Juxtaposed over that, it was like, it was someone that were like, oh, well, we believe in this candidate and he's finally gonna fix all these things. And you know what? He's gonna do it all. So I'm gonna unburden myself of everything, of all my desires to, to, to see change happen, and I'm gonna put them on his shoulders. And that was, you're sort of set up to fail at that point. You know, mm-hmm. you've sort of, you've now put this person on a pedestal and you believe that this person's gonna change the whole world. You know, again, it's not something exclusively manufactured by the White House. You know? And so I feel like there's a lesson to be learned there, mm-hmm. that presidents, Congress people, you know, they, they listen. Change comes not from them, but from below them. It comes from us. It comes from people. It comes from you know, people who desire change every day and push for it, and then their politicians answer to that. You know, we, need to, we need to create a demand. In a way, you know what I mean, and I think that's far more has far less to do with left versus right and sort of the bipartisan politics of today's world. I think there's there's not everybody fits into those into those boxes. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? There's there's more there's more going on. It's really it's really divisive. You know, because there's a lot of common ground out there, and um and it's unfortunate.
1: You know, I noticed when uh, about a month and a half ago when the whole Kony 2012 was happening, right? Okay. The viral video. And it was a very interesting video. But my takeaway, not, not necessarily from that being a, you know, here's this, this horrible person in Central Africa, but mm. it was if this really works, then it shows people that change can come from them. Mm. And it comes from a, a viral video, social media, things of that nature. So mm. I have to believe, while I agree wholeheartedly with what you're saying, um, that people can affect change, mm-hmm. you know, especially if they get inspired, say, by a, a song that moves them like right. a viral video.
0: Not and, only can people affect change, but like if you look in, throughout history, people are the only thing that's affected that's change. I think it was—it's a Margaret Mead quote, and, and she said, "The only thing that's ever changed, you know, the course of history are a small group of thoughtful people." Mm-hmm. And that's the fir- thats what happens. That's how. That's how. We end wars. It's how we change policies. It's how we demand civil rights or women's rights. It's from it's from grassroots organizing, you know, and that's what has always changed, you know, what has always produced change. And I think that my generation has to, uh, is still learning that lesson. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? But I, I guess I have hope that that they will learn that lesson. You know.
1: And you're a father, right?
0: I am. Yeah, I have two two kids. So you have two kids. I have mm. two kids. Okay. Yeah. So you start asking yourselves question,
1: man, what's that world gonna look like in twenty years when they're when they're running around?
0: Right. You know, and I have and I have two girls and, and women's rights are on the table right now. You know, things that we thought were in the wake. Right. You know, are are back on the table. You know what I mean? And I think something that has traditionally been viewed as progress is now there are now people in our country who would roll that back, you know what I mean? And if we put those things back on the table, what's what's next? You know what I mean? we put Women's rights back on the table. We put we put we put civil rights back on the table. We put voting rights back on the table. Um, it, it it certainly it, could, it it makes me concerned about you know their future um, mm-hmm. for sure. But I also I want to be, you know, I I, I want to be there for them and help answer their questions, and so they can go into the world and start formulate their own opinions, and then hopefully fight for their own you know right to exist and, and right to be who they are and not let anybody take that away from them. So in Florida, about an hour and a half up the road is Sanford where the
1: Trayvon Martin case right. is the biggest story in America. You know, do you have a, you know, I got to ask you if you have an opinion or mm-hmm. you see the, those events unfolding.
0: Yeah, it's really interesting to watch them unfold and there's certainly, there's a lot of uh, racial overtones mm-hmm. to that case and I think what's being glossed over is, is I don't see it as like a case about Race. I see it as a case about guns, to be honest. I see it as a case about guns, who has them, who's allowed to have them, mm. and how they're allowed to use them. You know, And those kind of laws are getting out of control in a way. And I think that, in, in, in my opinion, a group like the NRA has not successfully defended the Second Amendment, but they've successfully armed criminals and deviants throughout this country and then given them policy that put in place that allows them to use it. You know, um, I don't want somebody trolling through my neighborhood with a gun, in and claiming that they're protecting me and my family. You know what I mean? Like, and I certainly don't want that person doing that. You know, if it's been like someone that's sort of unelected and mm-hmm. the neighborhood didn't decide that, because then you have something like the Trayvon Martin case. It's, it's it's an inevitability, yep. and and unfortunately, with the way gun laws are today, and how and how. Groups like the NRA have this sort of chokehold on Congress. I, I, it's. I think we're going to see more Trayvon Martin cases, you know, because you have, you have this completely blind policy that's just arming the wrong people. You know, what I mean, people like Jared Loughner, who shot the Senator Gabby Giffords in Arizona, was um, a kid who had been kicked out of his college because they said he was mentally ill and he was scaring other students and he wasn't allowed to return to the college until he had a note from a mental health professional saying it's okay. So the college said, "No, we don't want you scaring your classmates." But the gun shop said, "Yes, we will give you a weapon." You know, and like are those the people that we should be arming? You know what I mean? Are those the people it, it's just I think that it's it's sort of it's sort of scary and um and that that case I can't help but see it as an inevitability and I can't help but see more of those things happening unless we start to you know, find these loopholes and, and block them up, and, and find out ways to better protect each other.
1: For all the madness in America, is there a country that America could could learn from or, or take some cues from? Denmark being the happiest right. country in the world.
0: <laughs> we could we could probably learn from it. Um, every, every. I see this through the filter of uh, of healthcare, I guess, is mm-hmm. how well. I look at it. And we are the only society in the Western world that doesn't have some sort of universal healthcare that we don't. See uh, protecting our our people as a human right, you mm-hmm. know, and not only human right, but it's a, something that helps our economy grow, something that helps us become uh, a, a powerful country. And in that sense, I think we could learn from every other country in the Western world. You know, I feel like that's sort of without that infrastructure and foundation in place, then you're really losing sight on on that sort of in, investment. You know what I mean? I guess especially if you want to in speak in terms of, of free enterprise and, 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 and the, the uber capitalists that are against the idea. Like what is what could be more of an investment than than the future of America? What could be more of an investment than our kids will one day be running it? Like mm-hmm. that is that that is the that is an investment mm-hmm. that you should be that you should be investing in, that you should be paying into first and foremost, you know what I mean? And then it will yield results. You know what I mean? If like if people want to see it in sort of that Black and white, economical, you know, sort of jargon, but like that—that—that's that, kind of—it's—it's it's sort of a, a bizarre thing to me. And it's always interesting to be touring overseas, mm-hmm. and turning on the TV and like you know, finding the one English station. It's always like CNN, and and you're watching America debate something like universal health care while you're sitting in a country that that's had it for centuries, and, and and it's the fourth country you've sat in that week that's had it for centuries. You know, and you're looking at your hotel room window and you're just like, this isn't a Communist socialist country, you know what I mean? This isn't, this wasn't a takeover of people. They're very, they're very happy. And then I'm watching the TV and I'm watching America debate it as if we're inventing the wheel. Right. You know what I mean? As if it's like never been done before. And yeah, ha- and I'm in, and I'm in Australia where people are just kind of laughing at the, the debates, being like, wait, are they just talking about the thing that we've had forever? <laughs> you know what I mean? That like we grew up on, that our parents grew up on. Is that what they're talking about? You know, like it'd be like a country saying one day, this year. We're gonna put a man on the moon, and then someone being like, "Yo, it's been done before. Sorry, <laughs> you missed that. You know what I mean?" And that's kind of—I can't help but be that see it through that filter. And, and, I, and I guess I'm lucky to be able to tour the tour the world and kind of see it through different filters. And I, and I feel like that's kind of, if nothing else, that traveling has really humbled me.
1: So I want to talk a little bit about our, our 97X. I, mean, I was mentioned earlier, you know, you guys have got such a history with our radio station. I thank you for all the things that you've done, including this interview for, uh, for 97X. But I want to highlight a few things and just get your take on that. Mm. So first of all, uh, you've done a few acoustic things for us. Yeah. And we're, we're going back, and there's a great story, actually, in, in what used to be this room, our green room. Mm-hmm. Um, I believe you and Zach came in one day, and you did a couple of, a couple of Rise Against songs. And then we printed out the lyrics for Who Will Stop the Rain?
0: Oh, yeah.
1: And, and literally, it was almost like you guys learned it on the fly. And then, and then we, we got that. I'm sure that
0: it wasn't t- entirely right either, but we'll just, we'll just call it our interpretation of it. <laughs> it, was a good, it was a good interpretation. Yeah.
1: Um, and I think it, when we did the rooftop performance uh, a couple years later, when you were touring with Gaslight and Alkaline Trio, you did uh, Danzig uh, Mother. Oh, yeah. Um, so are there any, like, when you when you guys play acoustic, are there any cool covers that you like to do beyond that? Do you guys like to play acoustic? I strongly suggest that you do because you're good at it. Thank
0: you. Yeah, we 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 love it. Um, And there's always covers. We do a lot of obscure punk covers. um, Bands like Peg Boy from Chicago, or we'll do Minor Threat covers. Um, A lot of uh, we love a lot of like '90s stuff, like Sugar. You know, bands like that. Um, You know, hair metal ballads are. are, There's nothing more fun to play on an acoustic guitar than a hair metal metal ballad. Oh my god, like what? Eighteen in life Ugh, which is a great like one. nobody's fool. Yeah, something. yeah, yeah. All that stuff. You know, those are always fun. Yeah, you know, and it's funny too because you know I'm in I'm in my thirties, and so if I hang out with another guitar player, there's always somebody about my age. And if you if you're other if you're another guitar player, you've probably you've probably learned at least one. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Like as you were growing up. You know what I mean? Like I learned eighteen in life. You know what I mean? Like this guy learned you know a, a Bruce Springsteen song, whatever. And so then you trade. Like, how do you play that? You know, show me how to play that. You know, it's like, oh, here's Call of Cthulhu by Metallica. You know what I <laughs> mean? Just like, for me, I had a, I had a subscription to Guitar World for only two years of my life, and those years were like '95 and '96. Mm-hmm. And so, anything that was a top ten hit at that time, I can play. You know what <laughs> I mean? Whether it was Porno for Pyros or you know God, Pantera's uh, This Love. You know, it was just so funny because. All of the songs I know fall into this very narrow window mm-hmm. of like '90s alt rock, like something you'd see on 120 Minutes, you know. Because then my subscription expired, I never got another one, and then I just started writing my own songs and stopped really caring to learn anybody else. Thankfully, you let the subscription run out. I guess so. You're right. Yeah, and I think that's important too. And I, you know, even before I was learning those songs, I was starting to write my own stuff. I was more interested in creating my own sounds and creating my own chords, mm-hmm. and that was learning somebody else's. And I think that's a, a combination of a Not being good enough to play, you know, what Dimebag Daryl is playing, and then be like just wanting and not wanting to compete with them, but and then be just, you know, knowing that I had, you know, maybe not even knowing, but subconsciously, some somewhere there was a vision Mm -hmm. for for the kind of song I, I would like to hear. Well, your live performance—you know—we've talked about this
1: for years. Your live performance is amazing. Rising the live performance—it's it, one of the best. Thanks. You know, and you guys, next big thing, seven. So December of two thousand seven, you guys played third from last. Mm. Um, and, and you know, with all due respect to all the bands that were on the bill, when you guys walked off the stage, my thought was, I wouldn't want to follow that band. <laughs> you know, and gave us one of the most memorable performances there.
0: Those were all those shows were always amazing. And I feel like that one too. I like think we just came from Europe too. We were so happy to be just back. We did. And yeah. We were, that's we were, exactly right. Yeah, we were we were just back in the States. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? We all we all went and ate a bunch of good food, you know, and just like we we're just loving kind of being back on home turf and and we were so excited in that show. I remember that show being really exciting. And 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 but we've always had great shows down here. I mean we've had great audiences down here, and mm-hmm. that's half the battle right there. I mean, if you if you have that audience who's there and they're engaged and they're with you and they're in it then you can't help but sort of reciprocate that energy. And then you're just feeding back and forth. And in that sense, we've been very lucky to have that audience Mm -hmm. in in Florida. In 2009, conversely to that, um, you guys uh, headlined Next Big
1: Thing for us. And you played last. Mm -hmm. And the backdrop of your set was an upside down American flag, a Mm -hmm. black and white upside down American flag. For all the stuff that 97X has done for 12 years, I've never received more complaints <laughs> than the day I walked in my office the next day, going, "I can't believe that band put that flag upside down." Right, and uh, you know, but we also understand that it was a misinterpretation.
0: Yeah, and you know, it's 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 such a that's we and we didn't just do those flags um, in Florida. We did them in every every show we did that year. You know. And I remember even sitting down, we were talking about what we were going to do on stage and the, and the kind of production we were going to have. And when we talked about doing "Upside Down American Flags," it's funny because the, inter- the internal conversation between us was not that it, would, it was going to be too radical, but that it was going to be too trite in a way. We were like, because I guess I guess we're just such children of punk rock and hardcore, and, and, and I was at the Rage Against the Machine shows, you know what I mean, when they were coming through Chicago, that we almost thought as something that had been overdone. You know what I mean? We were like. Should we do upside on America flags, or is this just something that's like people would just expect from us? You know what I mean? And so it was never that, it, and the, and the only concern was that it wouldn't be radical enough. That was yeah. that was the only concern in our band was that it wouldn't get an appropriate reaction. It wouldn't sort of create the friction we wanted it to create because it is an overdone image. That was the only concern in the band. And eventually, I, it was me actually who convinced the band who was like, "No, I think we should do. It. I think it still it still means something." Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And there's still people that out there who will understand the upside on American flag as an international signal of distress. You know what I mean? Not necessarily a single of, of, of any sort of lack of patriotism or un-Americanism, but it was more of like this, this symbol of distress, you mm-hmm. know? Um, and so shows like Florida were kind of like my I told you so moments, you know what I mean, where I was like, see? It still, still rubs people the wrong way sometimes. It still creates that friction. And only in that friction is do conversations happen and does does change really happen. And um, we knew, I mean, I knew it was a jarring issue. It would be a, a, a jarring image, especially, and it's, diff- and it's different in different parts of the country. You know what I mean? Like Florida, you know, took it in, in different ways. than Other people took it. Festivals take it different. You know what I mean? But then we're just playing a Rise Against show, where people know who we are as a band, or if like a giant festival, the like next big thing, you know, we have a lot of our fans, but you know, probably half the crowd just kind of is vaguely familiar with some with our songs and. Don't really know who we are, so I could see them seeing that th- through a filter and saying, "Well, I don't know who this band is or why they're doing that." You know, and I guess that's, I guess that's why we do this. This is so people ask those questions. You know what I mean? Like we're not out there to like make friends with you and like your dad and like you know whoever else you brought to the show and you know and make everybody happy. You know what I mean? Like we're, this isn't like you know we're not like a Sammy Hagar show where we're all just gonna be like partying and having a good time. You know what I mean? Like. We're in this for different reasons, you know Mm -hmm. what I mean. And if those reasons didn't exist, we wouldn't wouldn't be up on this stage. And and the fact that we are on the stage still, this many years later, uh, is evidence that there are people who really identify with what we do. You know, and something like that, something like doing that flag is just is just a part of. It's part of who we are. It's part of what we do. Um, We've always been unapologetically a thorn in the side of the establishment. You know what I mean? And that's something that we will always, always be. And the day that we decide not to be a thorn in the side of the establishment, I hope someone shoots me in the head.
1: I hope that doesn't happen. (laughs) Tim, thank you so much for the time.
0: Yeah, my pleasure. Yeah, yeah.
2: There you go. An incredible person, an amazing band, Tim McElrath of Rise Against. That interview happened April 30th in 2012. Now, Rise Against went on to actually headline 97X Next Big Thing later that year. They've also released two studio albums since then, the most recent being in 2017. And they've continued to be outspoken on political topics like animal rights, economic injustice, environmental disasters, homophobia, political corruption. And that's just the beginning. Beginning. There is no doubt that Rise Against and Tim McElrath are 97X icons. Thanks for joining us today as we looked back at another moment in 97X history, and we hope you'll stream us each episode as we highlight another 97X icon. Tito's Handmade Vodka is distilled from corn and certified gluten-free. In the mid-90s, Tito Beverage built his very own microdistillery in Austin, Texas, and put his life savings into it. He continues to produce award-winning smooth American vodka on the same land where it all started over 20 years later. Tito's has won the unanimous Judge's Choice Double Gold Medal at the World Spirits Competition among other awards. Visit us at titosvodka.com for recipes, videos, and more of Tito's story. 80 proof Tito's Handmade Vodka distilled and bottled in Austin, Texas crafted to be savored responsibly.
1: 97X Icons is a presentation of 97X hosted, hosted by, by Sam. Sam, edited by Anthony Minotti. 97 7x is a CXR station